We begin a new study in the book of Daniel this morning. If you're in need of a Bible to follow along, the pew Bibles in the back there, the black ones, uh, you'll find Daniel on page 737, uh, and you can read along with us. For those of you who brought your own Bible, you'll have to do your own pagination. I have a good memory, but I did not memorize all the published versions, page numbers. For the next 12 weeks, we're going to be in this series through the book of Daniel. We've called the series Watch the Throne. Um, the book of Daniel is focused primarily on one issue, which is the relationship between the kingdom of God and the empires of this earth. The first half of the book, we have uh, the stories you may be familiar with from your childhood, with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a fiery furnace, a lion's den, these types of things. Um, but have you ever taken the time to think about exactly what's going on in this book? Uh, the first is, all of these young men uh, that take up the first six chapters, they're Jews that have been relocated from devastated Israel into a pagan kingdom and then installed in the leadership of that empire. They work for the empire that sacked not just their city, but sacked the city of God's promises, right? Uh, that is their context. The second half uh, widens out the lens and Daniel begins to lay out uh, the future of human history and so he talks about the kingdoms that are to come on this earth and then this kingdom of God that's going to intervene and change everything. And so the two halves are very different, but they go together on this issue. Uh, if you're not familiar with the phrase, watch the throne, generally it just means if you're going to stay on the top, you better be aware of those other people who are after your greatness, who want to take your place. It's especially true, though, of... Uh, the kings in this book, they have to literally watch the throne, right? Um, that's the tension of the book. The reason why I wanted to study it for us, and this is what I would encourage you to think through, is to recognize that all of us as Christians are living life as exiles, as pilgrims. And if you read the New Testament, there's both uh, Statements about government that we should honor those in government positions and submit to their authority and this recognition of the powers and principalities of darkness that manifest themselves in those self-same positions of authority. We'll find that same tension in the book of Daniel. On top of that, we all are living in this land and we have uh, a responsibility that's almost uh, dual in nature. We have a responsibility as citizens of our own nature, uh, of our own nation, as, as co-workers of the place of business that we work for, uh, as participants in the um, civic setting that we're in, but we also have this place as being citizens of heaven, this place in the kingdom of God. And so what does it look like to do both of those? And what we'll discover in Daniel is that it's not it's not an either-or. It's not either you make your allegiance to one or the other. It's not that we run away from the empires of this world and start our own kingdom, because almost always 
we take empire with us in our hearts and we just set it up over again. And it's also not that we just do both and we take the governments of this world and the society in which we live and we elevate it to the power of deity and we say this, we are God's people, this is God's truth, this is, we don't do either of those. There's a tension to this. A tension that whether you know it or not consciously, we all feel. And so um, the twofold purpose then of this book is both to get a feel for this tension and to help us live in its midst. So with that being said, today we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1. Let's go ahead and read the length of it together and then we'll pray. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his king, chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribes of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of our, the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. Among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, the enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Father, 
Father, there are lessons that you want to lay out before us as the book of Daniel was considered by your people to be part not of the prophets but of the wisdom literature. Uh, Then it lays out before us these stories to say this is how we are to conduct ourselves in the world we are to live. And so I pray, Lord, for each of us that you would grant us that self-same wisdom. And as we see in Daniel today, I pray that you would teach us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We ask for your Spirit's help in this, in Jesus' name, amen. Go back to the opening of the book, very first verse there. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There's different periods of time in Israel's history as we read through the Old Testament. So we have the days of the patriarchs. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who have no land yet and are just given a promise, right? A promise that God will give them a people, that God will give them a land, that they will bring them out of another land and into the land that we call Israel to possess. Uh, Then we have the actual Exodus story itself when Moses brings out these people and brings them into the land and under Joshua they conquer the land and from that point on they reside in the land and we have the days of the judges and then eventually God raises up a king, first Saul and then a king after his own heart named David. And for hundreds of years David and his descendants reign over Judah but over the course of these hundreds of years Israel is consistently drifting away from God, disobedient to the covenant, um, worshiping the gods of their neighbors. And so God sends prophets, one after another, Isaiah uh, and uh, Hosea, and so many of the prophets are sent to Israel to say, turn back, the way you're going leads to destruction. The later prophets begin to warn exactly where it's headed, and they start to talk specifically of Babylon. That God is going to bring in the Chaldeans and they're going to ransack Israel. They're going to deport you from the land and leave the land in ruins. But Israel doesn't turn around. And so this is where they find themselves now in the foreign country of Babylon. It was, uh, it was Nebuchadnezzar's policy to take the best people of the land, whichever land he conquered, Babylon was an early empire, and deport them into uh, especially his capital city, but into the area of Babylon and recondition them to be Babylonians. They were no longer Egyptians. They were no longer Phoenicians. They were no longer Israel. They were now Babylon. That was his policy. And so what we see here uh, opens up with that, but um, what you have to recognize is what this would mean for the Jews who read this book. Daniel is written to the rest of those who are in exile. You see, Israel won't enter into the land again until under the reign of King Cyrus at the end of Daniel's life. And even there, they'll live first under the Medo-Persians and then under the Greeks and then finally under the Romans. And they're still under the power of the, uh, the Romans when we get to the days of Jesus. And so all of them now have this place of how to conduct themselves in the context of a foreign empire. So Daniel is written to them. Daniel and his friends are given as an example to them. But consider what it's like, the, the questions and the distance. 
God's given all these promises to Israel. You see, God didn't just promise Israel a land. He promised to establish them in the land and then send the Messiah. In fact, all the way back in the book of Genesis, God says the tribe of Judah will reign continuously until the Messiah comes, and now there's no king in Israel. What does it mean? Is this the end of God's promises? Is it possible that Israel has finally gone too far and there's no reversal? Can they even refer to themselves as Jews anymore? Is God still in control? Is his goodness still present? Now when it mentions here Daniel and his friends are youths, that means teenagers. So add all of the tension here that comes with that, that they're between 13 and 17, and they're just thrown in the midst of this, and basically in a matter of days, they have to figure out, okay, what does faithful living look like here? Look at verse 2 with me. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So notice what he does here. Nebuchadnezzar conquers. He gets into Jerusalem where there's this temple, and the temple is full of these beautifully wrought instruments of Israel's worship, golden furniture, silver utensils, And he takes some of them, and where does he put them? He doesn't melt them down. He doesn't put them in his own storehouse. He puts them in the treasury of his own God. Do you know what that would mean in those days, the significance of that action? This is not just a human victory against other humans. This is a divine victory. He sees the fact that he has overcome the God of Israel as being evidence that his God is more powerful. And so he takes these religious trophies and hangs them in the temple of his own God. That's the tension that we're talking about here. Is God strong? Is God victorious? Is he the one true God? Now it's all questionable. And for Nebuchadnezzar, he knows the answer, and the answer is that his God reigns. But the narrator opens our eyes a little bit more. In fact, when it refers here to the vessels of the house of God, we come across one of the unique aspects of the book of Daniel, which is that before God there, he always uses, throughout the book, whenever he refers to God, the God of Israel, he uses the little uh, definite article, what we call the. Okay, and so if I could read this out again, notice to the contrast here, the vessels of the house of the God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of His God. See what the narrator's pointing out there? Right here in the tension of this contrast, he says, don't misunderstand here. He brought them into the temple of his personal God, but those articles were the articles of the God, the real God, the only God. The one who says in the book of Exodus, I am the Lord God, there is no other. But that doesn't make anything easier. It leaves the questions there. In fact, Notice the beginning of verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, one of the things we see woven through chapter 1 is the reality that God is sovereign. Now, that's amazing because on the surface, if you were Daniel or if you were one of the other exiles, this external reality 
everything you're looking at brings that into question. Right? It's real easy to say God is sovereign when you're standing in victory. When, like the people of Israel, you rout your enemies and a hundred of them flee before one and a thousand before ten. But what about here in decimation and devastation and destruction? But Daniel lets us in here, pulls back the curtain and says, no, 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 this is all the plan of God. And the reason that's significant is because notice how it plays out in these four men's lives. God's plan includes the sacking of Jerusalem. God's plan includes Nebuchadnezzar's victory, despite the fact that Nebuchadnezzar sees it as a means to worship his own God. And it includes them being brought from the land of Israel and installed in the king's house. I think this is significant for us this morning. Now, we don't necessarily live under the thumb of a foreign ruler. We haven't been kidnapped or ransacked or taken. Everything that happens against Daniel and his friends here happens against their will, right? This job that they're about to uh, take, they didn't apply for. They didn't present their resumes, right? They were literally forcibly taken from their homes. There's very little option given in this chapter. However, I want to recognize for us as participants in our city, as citizens of our nation, as workers in our places of business, that sometimes we look at the place we find ourselves and we go, I took a wrong turn somewhere. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. We question, we say, if, if God has called me to be a witness for him, why has he put me in a place like this? Maybe you see shady business practices going on. Or you're just fully aware of the idolatry that's present in your workplace. Now, it's different. I know that your boss doesn't necessarily have a temple to Chemosh, right? Where he stores all of the benefits and profits of the day in benefit to his worker. But the Bible makes clear that these old and ancient gods are just the personification of the things that all humans worship throughout all history. Greed. Power. Fertility and sex. We find those things in our workplace. We find those things in our government. And there's a tendency to think that faithfulness means exit. Faithfulness means avoiding contagion, removing ourselves from difficult circumstances. There are full and entire industries that some people wonder, is it possible to be a Christian and work in a job like that? Daniel's not given a choice. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're just taken. They find themselves in this place. But we find out right here in verse 2 that God is in control. You see, verse 3, the king commanded. But behind that command, the command of the king, the rule of the king is the command of God. I ask you this morning, Is it possible that God has placed you where you are, in the city you live in? God has placed you where you are, in the job that you have, in the family where you find yourself. And that's according to the plan. That it's not accidental. 
I think sometimes we think, if I'm going to serve God, the first thing I need to do is leave. First thing I need to do is change my path. The first thing I need to do is, maybe even I'm just doing this so I can make enough money, so then I can go and serve God. Jesus, speaking to us as his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, gives us two pictures for what we're to be. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Okay, these are the two phrases that he gives, salt and light. Now, this may not be very encouraging to you this morning, but the place where salt needs to be, the place where you apply salt, is where things are a little bit raw. It's where there's a potential for corruption. Salt isn't to stay safely at a distance from the things that are spoiling, but to get right there in the wounds, right there up against the surface, right there where the damage is most likely rubbing shoulders with corruption. And it's the same with light. Light isn't very significant during the day. It doesn't have much value. You know, we don't light candles and set them out on a summer day you know, to light our porch, we have plenty of light. The place where we need flashlights, the place where we carry candles, the place where Jesus calls us into is the place where darkness is. Daniel's friends have a first-class ticket to a position of power, to a place of significance. So, verse 3, the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with all knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Okay, and so basically the program of Nebuchadnezzar here is to take the best prospects of the youth and bring them into his employ. Now, he has a twofold goal there. One is because smart is where you, you find smart. It doesn't matter where you get it from. He wants the best, and it doesn't matter what their background is. But the second reason is because these are the ones who were going to influence Israel's future. And so he wants to indoctrinate them and assimilate them to help with the indoctrination and the assimilation of the people of Israel. So we see here there to be the smart ones, there to be the ones of good lineage, there to be the ones that are attractive, and the goal here is that they would serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. We see that comes with three pieces, three things that they're uh, going to do. And so verse, um, verse 4. Okay, at the very end there, the first thing we see is that they're going to teach them in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Okay. So first off, they're to be instructed. It tells us later in the chapter that they're going to have a three-year education in all of the literature of Babylon. Now, it's very clear here that this literature is inherently religious, that this literature is steeped in, I mean, look at who their teachers are in verse 20. Every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Okay? That's where Daniel's going to find himself in those ranks. 
The advisors of the kings were not secular advisors. All empires in this day and age were religious. They were religious advisors. Okay? And so the education that we're talking about here is a religious re-education. Second, verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. Okay? And so one of the privileges of their office is that they eat at the same table as the king. Okay? That's the best food the empire has to offer, and that's now their table. Uh, it continues here, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. This is part three. Okay? So first, new education. Second, a place at the table. And finally, new names. And so the chief of the eunuchs names Daniel, Belshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. When we look at their Jewish names there, every one of them contains the name of the God of Israel. Their names like God is judge, that's what Daniel means. Okay. Uh, when the eunuch gives them new names, that is all in reference to the idols of Babylon. Okay. And so Belshazzar actually means, it means... Uh, Baal, come to my rescue. It's not Baal. I can't remember the name of this pagan god. Yeah. Uh, and then Abednego, as far as Azariah, Azariah's name means servant of El, servant of God. Abednego means servant of Nebo. Okay. They're intentionally given new identities based on the gods of Babylon. So these are the three things. Now, Daniel chooses one to pick a fight about. One where he draws the line. See, that's the second thing we need to talk about. Uh, salt and light into the places where they're needed, but if your light is darkness, if your salt is corruption, for us to be a witness, we have to be in the midst of the world, but different from it. For us to change culture, to influence it, we have to be rubbing up against it, but we also have to be different than it. So Daniel seeks to maintain his Jewish identity here, but it's striking to me where he draws the line. Here they're to be educated in the systems, the religious systems of this Babylonian empire. He doesn't bat an eye. That's surprising to me. Those of you who are parents understand the concerns of education for our own children, the public school system. Daniel has no problem there. Gives him new names, new identities, so that every time somebody calls Daniel by his new name, Belshazzar, they evoke the gods of Babylon. But he doesn't throw a fit about that. He doesn't care what he's called. He's not concerned for labels. His identity is somehow grounded. In fact, these two, we can understand the reason is because there's deeper truths that, if you will, keep Daniel and his friends stable. Yes, he's going to be educated in the systems of Babylon, but that's not the only education he will receive. We find out in chapter 9 
that he's also very educated in the scriptures of the Jews. In fact, he's such a good student of the book of Jeremiah that he comes to realize that one of the prophecies of Jeremiah is just about to be fulfilled, that the 70 years that God warned Israel they would be in captivity for are coming to a close, and so he begins to pray that God would work. You see, it's the same thing here for us uh, that the, you know, the schooling that we get doesn't always come from a Christian perspective. Why would it? It reflects the belief systems of the world that we live in. And not just the truths and facts of the world we live in, but the values as well. Here's what's important. Here's what really matters. But Daniel doesn't balk at that. And with the identity thing, boy, we hate. We hate to be referred to inaccurately. We don't like to be identified with things that we don't like. Right? We distance ourselves and we say, I just want to make clear here that I'm on this side of the issue and not that side. But Daniel's not bothered by that. His identity goes deeper than those things. His reputation in this book stands before an audience of one, and he doesn't really care what he's called by other people. But it's the menu where he says, that's going to be a problem. One of the things I want you to notice this morning is that that is one of the privileges of the office, isn't it? It's one of the advantages of his position. This is a fringe benefit, and he goes, that's not going to work. You see, if we're going to learn how to be faithful witnesses or representatives or ambassadors of God's kingdom, we have to recognize that it's not just about being called to do obvious and awful and horrible things that it also has to do with the benefits. It has to do with the privileges. He looks here at the fact that he's being offered the best food of Babylon, and he says, no, I can't, I can't do that. Why? There's two very clear reasons. One, Daniel, being Jewish, is going to seek to maintain the kosher rules. He has no reason to believe that any of the food of Babylon is prepared up to the standard that Israelites are required in the book of Leviticus to maintain, that the blood has been fully drained before the meat is served, um, that, that this is going to be uh, only kosher foods or that the preparation is going to be kosher, but there's a second reason. In the entire ancient world, butchers and priests go together. We read about this actually in the New Testament as being a problem for the church in Corinth. You see, if you went into the market and bought a piece of meat, it was very likely that when that animal was slaughtered, it was slaughtered as a sacrifice presented to whatever god the butcher worshipped, and then the extra was offered in the market. And this was a tension in the church in Corinth, but it's a tension for Daniel too, for him to eat at this table is directly an act of worship. He's not just fellowshipping with the king, he's fellowshipping with the gods of the king. Now that's what creates the tension of this chapter. Here we see God's will bringing them to this place. Here we see everything it entails, but like each and every one of us, Daniel has to go, where's the line? 
Where is the line between engaging and participating and serving shoulder to shoulder with those we disagree with and not losing our identity inherent? Not losing the ability to, uh, to push back, to confront, to be a counterculture, to be salt and light. Notice what Daniel does in verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. I want you to notice that word resolve. He resolved in his heart. Okay, That's determination. He doesn't think, well, maybe I can find a way around this and leave it up to chance. He doesn't say, if my employer lets me out of it, but if, if he makes me do it, then... He's my authority and I just have to do it. No, he's not going to do this. He resolves in his heart. He has conviction. But the way that he goes about handling that conviction, I think, is so different than the way we often do. Notice that he doesn't make any demands. He doesn't even make a fuss. He doesn't start a protest. He doesn't do any of these things. Instead... Notice what it says there, verse 8, Therefore he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He makes a request. Now, he makes that request very clearly. Allow him not to defile himself. What is he saying? This isn't dietary in nature. It's not just, I'm not very fond of meat, right? He says, this I see as defiling. This I see is corrupting. This I cannot participate in. Will you allow me to abstain? But notice what else he doesn't do. As we're going to see here, he seeks to bear the cost of his discipline on himself. He doesn't say, I want the king not to serve this anymore in my presence. He doesn't say, I want this to be a standard secondary menu to match my dietary needs. In fact, his choice here is going to be for the rest of his life, or at least for the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, to be a vegetarian. Now, the word there for vegetables that we're to read is broader. It's plants, okay? So that would include grains. But to abstain from meat and to abstain from wine. And he's willing to do that the rest of his life. You see, I think one of the places where we go wrong is that we feel like the only way we can be a good witness is if we lay our conscience on other people. If we bring them up to our standards. But Daniel doesn't feel the need to do that. He takes the cost on his own shoulders. Way before abolitionism was really a thing in the United States, a man named John Woolman started to feel terrible about slavery. The Lord just awoke him to the reality of these things, and he went to his own church, the Brethren, and the, the, the whole way this movement, the Quakers, worked, uh, he would basically petition to go to other congregations and speak and share what was on his heart. Sometimes they'd say yes, sometimes they'd say no, and he'd devote his life to doing that. Okay, traveling around and calling people in, just in his own movement, just in the Quakers, to stop owning slaves, to set them free. Okay. 
But as he started to do so, he started to realize how much slavery was woven into his own life. So, for example, he was going to take a trip to England, and he realized the only reason the fare, the ticket, was so cheap was because of the sugar trade, right? Because the boats would carry the sugar in, and then they'd carry people back. It was this triangle between Africa, the colonies, and England. And so this is what he did. He calculated what the fare would be like if, he, if the sugar trade didn't exist. He ran the numbers, and then he paid his fare in that amount. He was a conscientious shopper. He operated from a place of conviction, but it wasn't just platform. It wasn't just posturing. And it came out of his own pockets. That's what Daniel does. He says, I'm not asking for special treatment. Just allow me to only eat the vegetables. Just allow me to abstain. Now, let's deal with this fact that he just asked. We've already seen that he's resolved. He's not going to eat of this, but the first thing he does is he asks, okay? Clearly, that just speaks of respect. Clearly, it just speaks of the fact uh, that he does this you know, not in a loud and abrasive way. And I think, once again, this is significant because a lot of times we feel like we're only witness if we're loud, if everybody sees. In fact, in our days, broader than the church, just culturally, you're only prophetic if you're angry. And Daniel comes, he's made the resolve. He probably has a plan B and a plan C, and one of those plans, I will be very clear here, is death. His friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in just two chapters, they're going to be called to publicly bow down and worship a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and they're going to refuse. They're going to be brought before the court, and he's going to say, if you do not do this, you will die. And they're going to say, so be it. Okay. He's resolved. I want to be clear on that. But where does he begin? It's not about where he's willing to end. Okay. Martyrs don't race to the finish line. He's willing to lose his life over this. But that's not where he begins. He begins by asking, and for the second time in this chapter, we find God active, and we find God doing the same thing. We find God giving. Remember, God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar. And now, verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. Proverbs 16, I believe verse 1, says the king's heart is like the rivers of many water and the Lord turns it whatever way he pleases. Daniel knows not only can God work sovereignly, he can work sovereignly in those who do not identify themselves as his people. What I want to show you here is he doesn't just give the chief of eunuchs the opportunity to act, he gives God room to act. And God does. This is what it means to act like, yes, we're in foreign territory. Yes, these are questionable circumstances, but our God reigns. This is what it looks like. 
It looks like leaving room for God to act. We'll see it again in a second. But here, God changes the heart of the eunuch. And then notice verse 10. The chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. He's already sympathetic, but he goes, there's a problem here. He says, it's my head on the line. And side note, he means it literally. This is not I could lose my job. This is I could lose my life. We're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar is fully capable of great cruelty. In fact, you remember the king in the beginning there, Jehoiakim, who was given over to his hand? When Nebuchadnezzar walked into the palace of Jerusalem, he took Jehoiakim's oldest son, the next to reign, and slaughtered him in front of him. And then he gouged out Jehoiakim's eyes so that that would be the last thing he ever saw was the death of his son. This is the king that we're talking about. Okay, this chief eunuch is very high up. He's, if you will, the chief of staff. He knows what this man is capable of, and he says, I get it, but if you abstain from this, and if you just eat only vegetables, if I don't feed you well, and you're not looking healthy, this could put my life at risk. Okay. Now, I already told you, Daniel is committed to him and him alone bearing the cost of this. And so, again, he gives the opportunity for God to work. Notice what he says here. Verse 11, Daniel said to the steward of the chief of eunuchs who had assigned over him Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. He says, how about a trial run? How bad could we look in 10 days? Just give it a chance. Once again, he's giving God an opportunity to work. Now, there's something that drives me crazy, especially in the Gospels. And that's when we take the miraculous doings of Jesus and we come up with more understandable and natural versions of it, okay? Chesterton says that we make the mistake of trying to deny the miraculous story that is recorded with a natural story that is not recorded, right? We just turn to a false account that nobody has tried to make the case of. There's a danger of doing that here and going, what happens next is just because vegetarianism is more healthy. That's not the point, okay? Remember, we're on a trial of 10 days here. Remember also that the way that they're described at the end of this is not just that they looked healthier, but that they looked fatter, okay? They put on weight in 10 days, okay? God is once again coming through for Daniel. Why? Because Daniel gave him an opportunity to work. Now, this is a place where we need to be very careful as Christians because if God is really sovereign, then we have to watch out for presumption. He says, put us to the test, but he doesn't put God to the test. There's an occasion where Jesus is being tempted by the devil, and he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, a relatively high height, and he says, why don't you just jump? I mean, the Old Testament's full of statements in the Psalms that says that angels will come to your rescue so you wouldn't even dash your foot against a stone. So just jump. Think how miraculous it would be. Think of how people would really know who you really are. You say you're the Son of God. Just jump, and when you don't hit the ground, everybody will go, I should listen to this person. And he says, no. And he quotes from Deuteronomy, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Daniel is already resolved in his heart. If plan A doesn't work, he'll move on to plan B, but he does give God room to work. 
Maybe you discover a bad business practice. You know that the way that the clients are being treated is taking advantage of them. When you come to the boss, is it possible that you can say, why don't you just let me have this next account and run it in a different way and let's just see, let's just see if it's more profitable. What if you come and you just say, let me employ the ethics of my kingdom for your benefit? What if you come and say, just give me a chance? Okay, now let's be clear here. This is something we'll see throughout Daniel. He is not just going through the motions in his job. He is fully available, committed, working hard. That's an essential part of this. If you're clearly just a bump on a log, don't try and convey compassion for the company you work for. But Daniel, he says, just test and see. So what happens? Verse 13. Let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and their wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay. Now, verse 17, we find God giving again. Notice this. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Okay? So once again, we see God acting. And what has he done? He's equipped them for their office. He's given them gifts and abilities, skills. Okay? Now, in the broadest sense... If we're talking about a sovereign God, and this is true of everybody in this room this morning, even if you're not a Christian, okay? We have to watch out for this because we're such autonomous beings, such individualists as moderns, we tend to assume there's a part that I bring to the table that is me. And usually it's these things. It's our talents. It's our abilities. It's our work ethic. But biblically, you have to recognize that all good gifts come from God. And Paul asks this question. He says, how can you boast in what you have received? If it's a gift, how can you be proud of it? Did you make it yourself? Did you design it? The abilities you have are God-given. And Daniel knows that he can employ these gifts in the service of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that's what Daniel knows, but I want to talk for a second just about what Daniel doesn't know. Daniel doesn't know that he's going to serve at the highest capacity. Side note, remember when I said Judah's supposed to be reigning the entire duration and now there's this big interruption? Daniel's from the tribe of Judah. And very quickly, he's second in office over all of Babylon, and then second in office over all of Persia, and then second in office over all Medo-Persia. The whole way through, the 70-year period, there's no king of Israel, but Daniel of the tribe of Judah is right where he's supposed to be. But he doesn't know that he's going to rule under four kings. This is just week one. This is just orientation. He doesn't know that he's going to see this kingdom sacked twice and outlive these kingdoms and serve for the next kingdom. He doesn't know that God is going to unpack the entire future of the history of Israel through him. 
But he does know that God's will has put him in this place, and he does know that eating the food on that table is not God's will. He acts and he operates where he is with what he knows. But here God has given him the abilities needed. Now, notice this. So first, we see the Lord gave, but the king commanded. And then we see the Lord gave, so the chief of eunuch listened. And finally, we see that God gave the youths these gifts, so, verse 20, they're taken forward here. We might as well read all of it. Uh, verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. He found them that way. God gave them the skills and the talents, and Nebuchadnezzar saw them. He was aware of them. He witnessed them. In fact, notice that it says that he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were all his kingdom. What does that mean for their life going forward? It means influence. Throughout the book, we're going to see these magicians and enchanters fail where Daniel and his friends succeed. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come to know the God of Israel, but it's a long haul. That's after he seeks to put Daniel's friends to death. That's after he walks out on his balcony one night and he goes, you know what, I am the greatest human being alive. Look at this kingdom that I have built. That's after a seven-year bout of insanity and recuperation. And then he says, I want to tell my whole kingdom that the king of Israel, that the God of Israel, he is God. But Daniel's there for the duration of it. He's present and operating. And as we'll see, he operates conscientiously, knowing where the line is, but he operates to the full strength of his ability. Because God is sovereign, we can live out our lives in the context we find ourselves, with the abilities that we're given, and we can do it without succumbing to the culture we live in. This is Jesus' prayer. He says, speaking of his disciples, I do not pray, Lord, that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from evil. This is our role. See, what I love about the kingdom of God as it's pre presented in the Bible is that it's not some conquering kingdom. In fact, how did the kingdom of God conquer? Through surrender. Through Jesus, not taking a golden crown, but a crown of thorns. Jesus not, you know, compelling those to worship him, but being put to death. It's such a different thing than other kingdoms. But the other thing I love about this kingdom is that it's an open invitation. For all of us who are Christians this morning, Paul tells us that we've been translated, just moved, just like this, out of ba into Babylon, translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into God's kingdom of life. Uh, kingdom of light. We've been given new residency. Not because of what we have done, but because we've received the free gift that God offers in Jesus Christ. And that invitation stands open to the enchanters and magicians. It stands open to Nebuchadnezzar uh, and Balthazar 
and Cyrus. And in the meantime, from this place of influence, they're literally changing the course of human history. They're in positions of power, but they don't succumb to the worship of power. They're rubbing shoulders with the wealthy, but they don't succumb to you know, the, the um, compromise of wealth. This is what it looks like to serve two kings. And I honestly believe that as we study through the book of Daniel, as a church, God is going to form us better into his ambassadors. And like I said, there's a lot of differences between the days of Daniel and the days of ours. If you look back on American history and you see Christian influence and a Christian context in the beginning, there's still vestiges of that today. There's the freedom that comes with this empire that is different than the tyranny of that empire. But if God is sovereign and working in Babylon, is he really absent from Seattle? Is he really not allowed in Amazon headquarters? Has he really forsaken America and said, look, the only true Christian decision is not to be here? I don't know what God's plan is for America, or Amazon for that matter, but I know that he's going to carry it out through his people that he's sovereignly placed there. And I know that the way that we're going to do that faithfully to love our neighbors as Jesus called us to, is to live out life with them, but live that life without compromise. Let's pray. Father, one of the things that I struggle with personally when I read stories like the story of Daniel is here we have somebody of tremendous gifting and tremendous resolve in a very high up position of power. But I look at my life as just, just a pastor in a single neighborhood. I look at uh, the lives of our church and some of us go, well, yeah, but I'm just, I'm just a barista or I'm only part-time or I, I'm just a teacher. I can't, I can't change the education I'm not a superintendent even. I have no power to change things. But God, you've called us to a ministry like Jesus, a ministry of living out our lives in the flesh, of incarnation, of walking in the midst and working change from the inside out. And so I pray, God, that we would operate as if you are truly on the throne, as if even if you're going to lead us to something else later, right now we are here, and that's where we find your will. That you're strong enough to keep us from succumbing to the influence around us and actually transforming it. And that the abilities you've given us, whether we would call them great or small, are God-given for your glory and the service of our neighbor. 
Thank you that we are citizens of kingdom, that we look for another city than this city, Lord, whose builder and maker is God. But I thank you, Lord, that that makes us the world's best citizens, that we can best serve Babylon by following our king. Fill us with your spirit and give us the wisdom of Daniel and his friends to know what this looks like in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to go ahead and move into the portion of our series that is a response. And we respond in a couple of ways. One of them is that we sing together. And Colossians says something really interesting. It calls us as Christians to sing songs to one another. If you were reading the book up to that point, you'd expect it to say to sing songs unto the Lord, and clearly we do that. This is an act of worship. We praise God. He says, this is who I am in his word, and we respond during this time saying, this is who you are. But we also proclaim these things loudly and boldly for the other people in the room who need to be reminded of them. We don't just need to sing these things, we need to hear these things. And if you pay attention, you'll notice notice this self-same King of Kings and Lord of Lords, this sovereign God that we worship. You need to preach that to yourself this morning. You also need to come and partake of communion. The worst thing that happens to the church is not when the world conquers us in the sense that we're destroyed or devastated or hurt or conquered in those ways. It's when we become the world. It's when we forget that we're citizens of another kingdom. And when we partake of communion, Paul says that we do this declaring the Lord's death until he comes. That's a pledge of allegiance. It says we're waiting for another king. The king who died for us, the king who bled for us, the king who willingly sacrificed himself for us, and following that king looks different. And so if you're a Christian this morning, please come forward and partake. Remember who Jesus is, and as you do so, reform your life like his. Repent in the places where you know that you've embraced uh, you know, the idolatry of the empires that we live in, the pursuit of wealth or comfort or these types of things. But let's just take some time now and respond. If you're in need of prayer this morning, there will be some people up front who would love to pray for you. But let's respond together. Lord, I need... um... You're reminding me of C.S. Lewis and and how he said that I need Jesus, not a picture, not an image that I've created. I need Jesus, the real Jesus himself, because a picture I can distort and what 